this week is going to be the true sophomore lit class that I promised you. We last week talked about the kind of who, what, when, where of Job as a book. And I talked a little bit about poetry and specifically why it seems like the Bible would use so much poetry. What is the value of poetry for a modern audience, for us, though we were not the original audience, but for a modern audience that doesn't doesn't use much poetry. Uh, Ancient audiences, way more common, way more common even than prose, but for us, not something with which we're regularly familiar other than what they make us do in school. So today we're going to go back to school. We're going to do a little sophomore lit because if we want to understand or get extra value out of our reading of Job, we want to be able to see lots of the details and the nuance of what Job is doing in the way that the story is written. And a lot of that requires understanding poetry, Hebrew poetry in specific, but just poetry in general because a lot of these techniques or poetic uh, attributes haven't changed over time. Hebrew poetry, like we talked about this last week, is not like English poetry. It has very little rhyme. It has no established meter, just a kind of random drop meter where there will be meter for a little while, and then it'll devolve back into something that doesn't really feel like meter to us. It looks in our Bible sometimes like indented prose, because when we look at poetry, we look for rhyming words at the end, we look for a very specific cadence, and we look at these indented parts of our Bible, and it kind of looks just like the prose, but it's not. It's poetry. And it's poetry not so much because of the syntax, but because of the, the words that are being used and the way that illustrations and allegory and simile are all coming to bear in these poems. If we're going to be good readers of poems, we've got to understand how poems work. And so we've got to do a little bit of, as I said, sophomore lit. So first, let's just talk about structure, because while there isn't a particular meter to Hebrew poetry, there's definitely structure. And that's how we will talk about it. It's how you evaluate which words go together. That's how that's why this matters for thinking about poetry is when I see 50 lines of poetry, yes, all 50 may make up the same poem and have some meaning together, but in terms of interpreting individual phrases or sentences, what goes with what? So we all know that poetry is made up of lines, right? That's the most basic unit, a line. A line may not be a sentence. Quite often, a line is not a full sentence. It's a part of a sentence. It's a phrase. And in your Bible, a line will be represented by, wait for it, a line. It will be the words on one line of text. So that's super helpful. We appreciate that. Groups of lines are called strophes. H-E-S. And then groups of strophes. Anybody know what they're called? Stanzas. See what you did there. Yeah. Groups of strophes are called stanzas. So those are the basic building blocks is we'll talk about lines, we'll talk about groups of lines, which are strophes, and we'll talk about groups of strophes, which are stanzas. Where do we see this concept the most in our worship service? Hymns. Hymns. Hymns are made up of lines, which create strophes, which create stanzas. We use the word verses these days for sing the fourth fourth verse, but we really mean sing the fourth stanza. It is an independent unit that is part of the bigger unit, which is the hymn itself. And you you see in hymns 
all the, the great parts about poetry, that you can have these really incredible just turns of phrase or idea that paints a word picture in your mind that is part of the biggest picture, the hymn itself, but also part of this smaller picture of that particular verse and the, the role that that word picture play, uh, plays in, in the verse. When we talk about lines, we talk about colons, not the that kind of colon, but a single line that stands by itself, or more often we talk about bicolons or tricolons. It's pretty self-explanatory, right? But the idea is, is that line meant to be interpreted and understood just in and of itself, or is it part of a pair? There's two lines, and in order to really understand it, you need both because they inform each other, or is it part of three? And sometimes you can't understand when something is in a bicolon or a tricolon, you can't understand rightly what one line means apart from the other two. And it's interesting because when we think about poetry, we probably think about poetry as extra language, right? Oh, that's not necessary. Prose would be so much shorter, so much more efficient. Poetry is just for people who want to add all of this fluff to what they're trying to say. It's actually quite the opposite. <laughs> poetry is very terse. Poetry uses what we call what we call economy of expression. Poetry leaves out words, and it's up to you as part of the understanding to figure out what part they left out. Think about it. If you speak a normal prose sentence, you need a lot of conjunctions in your sentence, don't you? How many conjunctions are in poetry? They just skip them all the time. You just leave them out. They're not that important. There's also in poetry something that's called gapping. Gapping is the dot, dot, dot effect, the ellipsis effect. The uh, Seinfeld would call it the yada, yada, yada effect, right? <laughs> we're going to leave out some words here because for economy, you know what goes in there. You know what I would have said in the middle. So I can skip that whole part and get right to the punchline, right to the end. That's called gapping. Uh, especially in a bicolon, if you've got two lines about the same thing, it is extremely common that in the second line, the author will leave out a bunch of stuff from the first that they just assume you will know because it was in the first part of this. So let's take an example. Daphne, will you go to Psalm 33? Yes. Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. All right, so blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's line one. And then line two of this bicolon is the people he chose for his inheritance. All right, there's our second line. These two must be taken together. This is a bicolon. Look at the second line, if you can read my writing. What's missing? Right, but what specifically is missing? Yeah, but what subject? 
what, what are we missing from the second? What is assumed in the second one? What about the people he chose for his inheritance? Who the people are? Yeah. What? The nation? The nation? Nope. Blessed. Blessed! Look! What, what about the people he chose for his inheritance? Blessed. Well, they're blessed. So the first one, blessed is the nation whose people is God. The second one, if it was prose, would say, and blessed are the people he chose for his inheritance. But you can leave that out. That's the ellipsis. That's the gapping of if I just gave you this verse, the second line, you would have no idea what it means. I would say, okay, look, kids, let's memorize the people he chose for his inheritance. Why? Why would we memorize that? What does that even mean? Blessed are the people he chose for his inheritance. So that's gapping. To really understand what's happening in the second line, we have to have the first. We have to know what was happening in there. The most common, Renee, will you turn to Psalm 6? And Nick, will you turn to Proverbs 10? The most common type of bicolon, these two lines that has to go together, is parallelism. And it's really important that we understand what's happening in a parallelism because it might be a little bit more than meets the eye. S sometimes people think parallelisms are, I'm going to change it up. I said line one and line two before. Now I'm going to say line A and line B just because it makes it easier to use math terms. Line A will say something and line B will say something in parallelism and they will be related. And sometimes what people think is, okay, it's grouping them together because they're about a similar subject. But the point of the parallelism is just A and also B. Both are true. Look, I connected them. But parallelisms do more than that. They say A and what's more, B. They carry forward the first. It's the further development of the idea. That's an A and even B. It's not just you could flip the order and it wouldn't matter or these two get grouped together because they're on a similar subject. There's a tighter connection that the second one is drawing, a, you're trying to draw attention to the second one. So you use the first one. So let's use examples. Psalm 6.1. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. So rebuke me not in your anger, that's, that's line A, nor discipline me in your wrath, that's line B. So if, if our mindset for this is not just, okay, those two are similar, we could do that, but if our mindset is B is illuminating something about A. It's carrying the idea forward. What additionally would we pause and think about for line B? Discipline me not in your wrath. What do we think about the word discipline? Rebuke is one word, right? Rebuke is, is punish. Rebuke is say that the thing you're doing is wrong. I don't want the Lord to say the thing that I'm doing is wrong because I don't want to do wrong things. That's an idea. Now carry forward that idea, nor discipline me in your wrath. We looked at discipline as out of love. 
Yeah, discipline is, is toward growth. Discipline is about promoting growth, turning something from what it is into what it ought to be. And that is something God will do and has to do because he loves his people. And so he will refine us from what we are into what we ought to be. He refines us in his wrath against sin. What does that mean for our discipline? It's going to hurt. It's scary. It is unsettling. So you see how you can take, you can gloss over this bicolon with just, yeah, yeah, we know. That's what God does. Or you look at the second one and say, what's being added here? What? Why would you say this a second way? It's not just because poems like to use more words. They don't. They like to use fewer words. So why did the poet add more words? He's adding an additional point, and we need to look carefully at these parallelisms to figure out what the additional point is. That's one where we use a synonym. So the one that Rene just read, synonyms. Rebuke me not in your anger, discipline me in your wrath. Parallelism with synonyms. Nick has Proverbs 10.1, which is a parallelism with antonyms. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. A wise son... I'm going to, the version I've memorized, uh, the wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son grief to his mother. So again, now it's, it's anonyms. These are opposite words rather than same words. They make a similar point. It's bad for a parent when a kid is a dope. That's the general theme here. The first one, a wise son brings joy to his father. Okay. Get, I get why that would be the case. A foolish son, grief to his mother. What did the ESV have in line B? But a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Is a sorrow to his mother. Both are true. Why did the poet add line B? It's A, what's more, B. And in this case, the what's more should cause us to think, wow, it's not just that I can impact myself with my behavior and I can make a parent or father joyful. I can bring grief, sorrow into the life of a parent, into the life of my mother by being a fool, by walking apart from the wisdom of God. It's, it's not some categorically different statement the poet is making. They're related. That's why they're in a parallelism. But we're making a mistake when we come on these parallelisms if we think the poet is simply restating what he said before with exactly the same meaning. We need to look and see what is the what's more, what was added here. Uh, parallelism can often go beyond two lines. So one of the more famous ones is Psalm 1-1. Psalm 1-1. So you have blessed is the man. That's A, and then B, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. I'm not going to write all that out. You would, couldn't read it anyway if I did. C, nor stands in the path of sinners. D, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Parallelism. It's spread across multiple lines. 
And then you're supposed to think about each one of these as what's the additional layer here? What What is the, what's additive? All right, walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Okay, you're blessed if you don't do what the world wants you to do, what the ungodly wants you to do. Walks not. The second one, stands in the path of sinners. And the third one, sits in the seat of the scornful. Well, what's the point of that parallelism? That's a tricolon. So we've got three lines here making the same point, adding a little bit by the fact that they're together and not just by themselves. You can't walk, you can't stand, you can't sit. What can you do? Nothing. Don't be with them. Don't be in their counsel. Don't listen to them. Don't be near them. If anything, run away. Use the verb that is omitted from this parallelism. Don't be in their presence. Don't walk with them. Of course not. I'm not going to walk with the ungodly. But would you stand in the path of sinners? Oh, I mean, I'm not the one doing it. I'm just, you know, so they can do what they're going to do. Nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Each one, A, what's more, B, what's more, C. That's parallelism. And that's kind of the structure. That's the most important structural thing we can understand about the poetry we're going to encounter. Is a lot of times in Job and all biblical poetry, it's not enough to take one line. You've got to look and see, is that line connected in parallelism with one or two or more other lines? Questions about that? And then let's talk about the content of poetry a little bit. All right, let's talk about content then. Poetry uses lots of images, lots of word pictures. And sometimes this is simply through mentioning two different things. All you have to do is invoke the image and people's minds will already start doing the work you want them to do if they're listening carefully. So if I write a line of poetry and I include the word rock and I include the word water, a careful reader is going to notice those and their mind is going to either have a picture or start comparing them or start contrasting them, thinking about why did he use those words? What's the role that those images play in the poem? That's what a simile is, right? The simile is a comparison of two things with the word like. So who's, um, Pam, can you go to Psalm 102? John, can you go to Psalm 23? And Crystal, can you go to Psalm 96? You got the thin page Bible. I know. It's like a very thin. Right. So some illustrate some images. Similes. This this son you gave me. <laughs> he brings grief to his mother. Is what I've heard. <laughs> All right. Some of these are very very simple. The image is invoked as a simile for a very straightforward purpose, but it's still poetic and helpful. So Pam, Psalm one hundred two nine. I eat ashes like bread. That's it. I eat ashes like bread. 
What does that say? I mean, yeah, you're all making the face. Yeah. Ugh, that's that's some sorrow, right? That is somebody who's that that um, you had a great meal, but there was one thing about it you didn't like, and that's the taste you can't get out of your mouth for the next several hours. That's what it's like walking through life. Ashes like bread. Everywhere I turn is tinged with sorrow. I can't get the taste out of my mouth. What a powerful image. That's the value of the poetry there. Psalm 23. So that's a that's a um, simile, right? Direct comparison of two things. Uh, sorry, uh, the comparison of two things with the word like. Ashes like bread. You don't have to have a simile. You don't have to use the word like. You can just do direct comparison. So Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I the, shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is not like my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. It is a direct comparison. Also in this vein of imagery is what's called personification. And that's when you attribute human attributes to something that is not human. So Psalm 96, 11 and 12. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. That is personification. And if you stop and think about what's being said, it's really cool. <laughs> let the heavens be glad. Can heavens be glad? No. <laughs> but if they could, <laughs> this is what would make them glad, the glory of God. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar. It's such a cool thing to hear, the, the, the sound of the sea. It has a lot of power for an inanimate object. What if it were using that power to the glory of God? It is, just not in a, in, a, in a human way. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. That's why so often in movies and in good fiction, in books, they, they do give human characteristics to inanimate things. The trees do, the ants do rejoice, right? They do get mad and go to war. and then, Because there's, there's something just cool about that as you're thinking about these significant emotional impacts brought about by big stuff like the glory of God yeah the stones will cry out that what else could they do it's that big a deal and so that's that's poetry that's the the imagery of poetry is to make us think that's really cool or ashes with bread that's really gross <laughs> That's, but you know what he's talking about, right? It, it connects in a way that is deeper than just the factual information. The factual information has to be present. A lot of poetry is nonsense and it connects with people emotionally, but it's absolute nonsense. You listen to what it's saying and what it's saying is not true. It's trying to manipulate your emotions. It's trying to make you feel something that is not true or is not good. Biblical poetry is true and good and gets at the emotions. And so we can trust where it takes us emotionally because it's of God and it's true and it's good. And that's going to be a big deal in Job is that 
we need to trust where this takes us emotionally. Because <laughs> Job is going to take us on an emotional roller coaster. And Job's friends, are, some of them are really going to struggle with that. We, it's not okay to go to some of these places. We've got to put it in a neat little box. And it can't be put in a neat little box. It's, it's emotionally complicated. Because it is factually complicated. What's happening in the world with an all-sovereign God and with people who are free and make meaningful choices is factually complicated. And so it's not going to fit in a neat little box with a bow. Uh, last part of our literature class, let's talk about specialized poetic forms. These are very particular elements that we find in poetry sometimes that we need to know what they are so that when we come across them, we can identify them and understand them. You'll be familiar with all of these already. So I just want to, uh, well, with most of these already. So I just want to draw your attention back to them. The first are acrostics. We talked about acrostics in our minor poets class. Uh, acrostics are, uh, there are full acrostics and there are partial acrostics. Acrostics are where you can take the first letter of a line and those letters of all the lines lined up do something. Alphabetical acrostics are A, B, C, D, E, F, G, in Hebrew or Greek, but... Uh, sometimes they can spell something, right? You could take the, the first letter of five lines and just by looking at those letters, it would, it would spell something. This line starts with M and then E and then L and then E and then you spell Malek. And that poem, those six lines spell king. And that's a poem about kingship. And you, okay, that's, that's an acrostic. Um, the, the Hebrew alphabet, alphabetical acrostics are by far the most common in the Old Testament. Psalm 111, 112, 119. The last section of Proverbs 31 that's so familiar is a Hebrew alphabetical acrostic. It just, she, the, the, the godly woman is from A to Z, godly, has, does all of the things and has all of the things that represent godliness as a woman. Um, these help in memorization for people who didn't have access to written scriptures all the time. Alphabetical acrostics help you memorize it. If your goal is to memorize scripture, we tend to put it to music or break it down into small chunks. They tended to put it in acrostics so that you would have a memory prompt for what is the next line. Uh, but they also represent things. I mentioned Proverbs 31, from alpha to omega, that image of, of, of human perfection to the glory of God is all there. That's a complete acrostic. We talked about when we just read Nahum. Nahum 1 starts as an alphabetical acrostic and then descends into chaos. And the point it's trying to make is chaos. When God's judgment comes, chaos ensues uh, from, a, from a human point of view. So that's, that's an acrostic, and we will come across some acrostics in our reading of poetry. Another one is alliteration. What's alliteration? What's an acrostic alliteration? See what I did there? Alliteration, multiple words starting with the same letter. Um, and uh, what these do, so if you have, and it's not just starting with the same letter. In English, a lot of times it's that way. Um, you know, Charlie camps carefully is, a, is alliteration. In 
other languages, and I think in English, though I'm no poetry scholar, it's not so much that it starts with that letter. It's the recurrence of a consonantal sound. If you take a particular consonant and that sound is what recurs again and again and again, that's the alliteration. And this can do all kinds of cool things in these short passages. Um, so Nahum, which we just read, I don't know if there's no, I doubt you'd remember the specific verses, but we read some passages at the beginning of Nahum. Uh, Lauren, can you go to Nahum? Chapter 1 and verse 10. While she's looking for that, this is the one that will not just, it's hard to catch in the English. It's not in the English. Unless the author goes out of their way to kind of rig the English translation, you can't take Hebrew alliteration and translate it to English and still have alliteration. So this is where we rely on footnotes in our study Bibles that will often tell us the Hebrew words here sound like, and then it'll give us what that image that we're missing is. So Nahum, for example, in English, this probably isn't going to do it for you, but chapter 1, verse 10. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dry. So in English, you get nothing out of that except the direct meaning. But in Hebrew, there's a lot of ish consonantal sounds, a lot of sounds that slur the speech of the reader. Looking at that verse in Hebrew and reading it out loud, you sound like you've had one too many because all of that slurring, you trip over your own tongue and so it reinforces that idea it's about drunkards and you sound a little tipsy when you're reading that passage that can be the value of alliteration again we won't see it but our study bibles will tell us that it's there and sometimes it's cool one of my favorite is in job i'm sorry we're in job is in jonah the sounds of the words when jonah is on the boat and it describes the storm and it describes what's happening in the waves. It is violent, booming, splashing consonants. The person reading Jonah out loud to you in Hebrew should be spitting on you. And it should be very percussive and kind of punch you the way thunder or a wave striking the side of the ship would and then splashing up. It is really, really cool to hear a, a gifted reader of Hebrew read that section of Jonah which is why I'm not going to read it for you because it wouldn't be good for any of us. Uh, but it, it is, it's neat what they can do there with alliteration. Another one is assonance. This is alliteration with vowels. Alliteration is consonant sounds. Assonance is when vowel sounds are repeated. The most notable example of this in our recent experience is back when we were in the book of Ecclesiastes in worship. And if I had read to you Ecclesiastes 1 in Hebrew, I would have made a lot of sort of breathy, owl-ish who sounds as if wind were blowing around the room, right? Because that fits right in with what's happening there in Ecclesiastes 1, that kind of howling of the wind sound. And then... Another one is an inclusio. Inclusios are 
you say a thing, a, you say a bunch of other things, and then you end with either the exact thing you started with or something very, very close to it. We talk about inclusios like they're bookends. Uh, who's, Daphne, can you go to Psalm 8? Read verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And read verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What does that tell us about everything that comes in between those two verses? They speak to the majesty of God. <laughs> They're about the majestic name of God. The bookends tell us how to best understand what's in between. And that's the value of an inclusio. So those are, those are our poetic techniques. Uh, there's a lot there. There's, you know, it's sophomore litty, but I don't expect us to sit down and look at Job with our lined paper and diagram sentences. And although if you think that's fun, then have at it. Um, <laughs> But I do expect us to read Job with a desire to understand it and to understand it at something deeper than just a superficial level. And if you're going to understand Job at a deeper level, you have to understand poetry. You have to be able to look for it, to know it when you see it, and to have some understanding of what's happening here. Why is this parallelism here? It's not just that these two ideas are related. It's that we're supposed to look more deeply into the second one. What's the difference between the second one and the first? What got added? What got amped up? And that's something that is good for us to meditate on. Both are true, but there's something more here. I mean, you, you know, you who are big readers and have favorite authors when the book that you love the most by your favorite author is not often their most famous or popular book and so when you're recommending it to people you find yourself saying now you need to know this about where the author's coming from or kind of this is this is her style or this is the way she's gonna and that's right that's that's exactly right you need that to understand more than what meets the eye, more than what's on the surface. And that's how it is with Job. That's how it is with all biblical poetry. You need a little bit of backstory so that you can really look carefully at what's being done here. You can read the Gospel of, of Matthew and get all sorts of truth and tremendous value, saving truth, <laughs> sanctifying value, knowing nothing about Matthew's backstory. But when you learn to whom Matthew is writing, who, who really was that target audience? And then you go back through Matthew with a fine-tooth comb and you say, boy, he's really going after Jews. He wants to write a gospel that the Jews would be challenged by and, and would show the connectedness of the covenants and the testaments, you see a lot more in Matthew than you saw the first time. Luke, you know, is writing this orderly account. He's writing a, a, a history that would be acceptable to the Greeks, 
not acceptable once they realize the supernatural claims that are being made about Jesus and all that. But in terms of the style of writing and the content and what's included and what details matter, you need all this genealogy to establish time and place and setting and you need all these facts. And, and oh, that's why that's there. And I could see why Luke would ground these particular events in Jesus' life. He would group them this way together in his telling of things. All that understanding of what the author is doing and how they're trying to do it, it doesn't change a book from false to true, but it does add layers. It adds complexity. And for us then, it adds value because there's a level at which the story of Job is true and a little bit useful. But there's another layer at which you read Job and you engage with what actu what's actually happening and being said here, and you think, I don't know how I lived without this. <laughs> I don't know how I went through trial and hardship and pain and adversity. I don't know how I thought I ever could trust God and trust God's wisdom when the world was falling apart before God revealed to me in Job what's here to find in Job. Obviously, you can't because God's gracious, but that's the way we want to feel when we get to the end of this is, well, that was absolutely incredible. Job's contribution to the canon is absolutely incredible. Questions about that? And then I just want to talk for a couple minutes about the few introductory pages of our sort of complimentary book. But what questions about the structure of Job, Hebrew poetry? I told you everything I know about Hebrew poetry, but I'll make some stuff up. <laughs> Quiet today. Well, you told us everything you know, and that's more than that's, that's right. <laughs> what, what, what are you supposed to do at that point? You took away my only answer on tests, which is iambic pentameter. That's right. <laughs> won't, won't fly for Hebrew poetry. <laughs> All right. Well, let me pull up the book. Have any of y'all who started? I, I yeah. Matt has. Yeah, I knew Matt got way ahead. So I, I suggested to you that you not start. Uh, but you were certainly free to start, and now I'm going to talk as though you have started. So I, I've given you nothing to work with here. Uh, he starts the book, and again, we'll, we'll sort of use his sections of the book as broad categories through which I want to teach on the, the text of Job and the subjects of Job. So for next week, we'll talk about the first uh, from 1-1 to 2-10 which if you look in his book is the first chapter of the text. He has an introduction before that, um, but the first part of the text he deals with is 1-1 to 2-10, that initial prosaic introduction. Um, so you'll definitely want to read that in Job before next week, and then if you also get a chance to read this, um, you'll find it valuable, but then you'll say, why isn't that guy teaching the class? He's better than Paul. I just have to live with it. As we think about the book of Job, though, uh, Ash asks, why? Why why do bad things happen? And especially, kind of the question that Solomon asked in Ecclesiastes, even if we grant that no one is good, no one is righteous, no one deserves good things. It's only by God's grace that anyone get good things. 
even if we grant that, we can look around the world at people's behaviors and we can say that some people do worse than others, <laughs> do more bad, right? There are especially wicked. And on that spectrum, we could say there are good and especially good, not on an ontological moral perfection, but on a relativistic human scale. There are really bad people. There are not so bad people. And there's some people who seem pretty good. If God were just, because we know he's all powerful, then it seems like the really bad stuff that happens, even in this life, would be reserved for the people on the really bad end of that spectrum. And the people who are kind of in the middle would get a mix, but not horrible things. And the people who are good would get good things. Wisdom literature talks about this a lot. The righteous are blessed. The righteous will prosper. It makes these promises that basically good stuff comes to basically good people. Whereas the wicked will fall into a snare, the trap that they've set for themselves. The wicked, right? All of this sort of sets us up for the expectation that there's a, there's a logical connection between what you do and what you experience. But that's not what we see, is it? Or at least we see very strong exceptions to it. If we take the exceptions out, I would argue that is what we, we see. We see a lot of people, I mean, every one of us in this room, no matter how difficult our lives or things in our lives have been, can also make the list of tremendous blessings that have come from God. And I'm sure every wicked person that we can imagine who we think has all the money and all the fame and all the benefits, if we ask them to sit down and write all of the hardship and difficulty and struggle and pain of their lives, they'd have a list too. Everybody has pain. But we see some giant exceptions. And he begins the book by uh, writing about, he says, this book began as a sermon series 12 days before the first sermon. It's 2003. A police officer was stabbed and killed in Manchester, England. The officer was an upright man, a faithful husband, and a loving father. He was a Christian and a committed member of his church where he sometimes used to preach. The newspapers reported the moving statement by his father, whom I've since met, a former chairman of the UK Christian Police Association, who said through tears that he was praying for the man who had killed his son. The media told of the quiet dignity of the officer's widow. They showed the happy family snapshots with his teenage sons and daughters. So why was he killed? Does this not make us angry? If we're going to be honest, we will admit that there were others who deserved to die more than he did. Again, that's not denying the fallenness of all of us and that we all deserve death, but of the moral logic of the, the world in which we live, it doesn't seem right. Let the bad wife-beater cop get stabbed. Yeah. Don't let the loving husband, father, Christian, don't let him get stabbed. How hard would it be, God, to do this instead of that? That's the question we naturally ask when we see this kind of injustice. 
it seems like a pointless and terrible thing. Why does it happen? Uh, so Job, this is from the message. P paraphrases can be really helpful for meditation. So when we're studying the Bible, and when, like as we study the book of Job, we need to read literal translations. We need to use the ESV, the New American Standard, the King James. We need to read translations that are kind of word for word. What does the Hebrew say? Once we know what the text says and we're thinking about what the text means, paraphrases can be really helpful. It's one person, hopefully a thoughtful person's, opinion on what the text means. It's kind of what did it bring to mind for them. So Ash in this book will quote from the message a fair number of times, and that's why he's doing that. It's not like he's saying, this is a great translation you should all use. He's, he's saying, get the feel of the thing. And here's one person's feel of the thing. So he quotes Job 21 from the message. Why do the wicked have it so good? Live to a ripe old age and get rich. They get to see their children succeed. They get to watch and enjoy their grandchildren. Their homes are peaceful and free from fear. They never experience God's disciplining rod. Their bulls breed with great vigor and their cows calve without fail. They send their children out to play and watch them frolic like spring lambs. They make music with fiddles and flutes, have good times singing and dancing. They have a long life on easy street and die painlessly in their sleep. And then Ash writes, let's be honest, Job says. Let's have no more of this pious make-believe that life goes well for good people and badly for bad people. You look around the world and you see that it's simply not true. And for a believer... The follow-up question is, what kind of God runs a world like this? And that's the question of Job. I can't imagine a more important question for Christians trying to live faithfully until he comes. Obviously, there's lots of salvation questions that are more important before we're in Christ. Once we're in Christ and we're trying to live faithfully until he comes, isn't this the biggie? kind of God? How does it go like this? And so Job is this great study for people who suffer and for people who observe suffering and for people who want to be faithful and want to trust the wisdom of God despite suffering, but when they're honest, still ask the question in the back of their mind, what kind of God runs a world like this? And it's, it's just a really powerful question. The other... Oh, go ahead. I think also that people ask, so why would I want to be a Christian? So if God wants people to draw... You know, yeah, wouldn't Christianity be more appealing if it did make you healthy and rich? <laughs> or at least, you know, not the incredible suffering when you think about those... Yeah, this whole carry your cross thing is the worst out. marketing technique ever. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a great point. The other point that Ash makes in the introduction here is that Job is a very long book. And this wasn't something I'd really thought about until I'd read it uh, here. But God gave us a very long book to answer this question. And he gave us a very long book for a reason. This is not a question where you can fit the answer on a bumper sticker, is it? And that's, that's so often what we want. We want the soundbite. We want the fast answer, especially when we're trying to comfort someone else. So this is a good warning for us. This is God's gift to his people, to comfort his people 
in light of that question, what kind of God allows this to happen? God uses 40 chapters of Job to answer this question for his people. And when we come upon someone who's suffering, we try to console them with a sentence, a truism, two verses. We, we can unintentionally really trivialize what they're facing and, and oversimplify the answer in a desire to be compassionate, to be loving, and to make them feel better. Mostly we just want people to feel better. We don't like being around people who feel bad. We want to do everything we can to make the person who feels bad not feel bad. That's human nature. And we will say anything. A lot of times we end up saying stuff that isn't true, which is really not good. But then even trying to say things that are true, we say things that are either irrelevant or, very often with suffering, incomplete. There is no one verse you can read from Job that is a person's comfort in that moment. They need the whole book. They need all of this. And that's why God gave us all of this. Um, Job starts crazy. He uses the word frenetic, just this unbelievable sequence of events. And then it really, really slows down. It becomes a book of 38 chapters of individual conversations. It gets real slow because working through grief is real slow. There is no quick fix. Uh, so I would say what Ash says at the end of his introduction here, which is he wrote a great, he didn't say this, I'm saying he wrote a great little book. This is fantastic. This book is no substitute for reading the book of Job. You got to read the book of Job. This will help the class will help, but you've got to read the book of Job. He uses the great example. When Daffy and I travel, we like to buy the, the little Rick Steves guidebooks for wherever we're going. And it's not gospel. He's, we have differences of opinion on certain things. He likes to stay in uh, crappy old hotels in the downtown parts of cities so that he can feel part of the experience. And I like to stay at the Ritz-Carlton. And that's okay. <laughs> but... Uh, it's a good guidebook. It kind of orients you to the setting. And that's what this book does well. It, it's, it's your guidebook, but it's no replacement for going to France, for going to Italy, just by reading the Rick Steves book. And this is no replacement for the book of Job. And that's his point. And then he talks finally in the introduction that the majority of Job, 95% of it is poetry, which is why we started with sophomore lit. So. Next week, we will jump into the text of Job. 1 1 to 2 10. Uh, you are definitely read the introduction that I just paraphrased for you. And then, if you can hold off, maybe let me teach first and then do his guidebook on those chapters. But actually, as we dig into the text itself, I'm going to do a lot of stuff that is, that is outside of what's in here. So, you getting ahead of me is not really going to be a problem. All kidding aside, we're done. Thank you.